we continue to make our way through 1 Samuel, and uh, and this morning we are in a uh, a passage that <clears throat> when you come to it, it's one of those uh, where you're asking yourself, what what could I possibly walk away with uh, from 1 Samuel 22? Um, and I, I think the uh, I think the thing that really out of the entire text captures my attention more than anything is David's last word um, where he tells Abathar that safely uh, you will be with me. Safety is, is something that we want, we crave it, we, we look for it. <clears throat> Despite the fact that sometimes we talk about the good old days, I, I remember listening to my mom and dad talk about um, they had a Chevelle Y'all remember this Chevelle, you know, okay, right? It was gold. I think ours was golden color. But uh, driving from Missouri to Texas in the Chevelle and my dad talking about, you know, the windows down. And, and, uh, and of course, we're in the back seat flopping around like rag dolls because nobody wore seatbelts, right? And, um, and so we kind of brag about this, you know, yeah, we grew up in the days when you could drink from the, the you know, we, where you drunk water from the hose when you got thirsty playing outside and you didn't die of a parasite. And, uh, and you rode in the back seat of the Chevelle and you flopped around like a rag doll and you survived and you lived through it. And we, so we talk about it like it's a badge of honor. But the reality is we like seatbelts. We know now that riding in the back of a vehicle without a seatbelt or the front is, is dangerous. It's intrinsically a bad idea because the laws of physics, which have always been, tell us that an object in motion will stay in motion until it's acted upon very forcefully. And so we know, right? And so we, we like safety. Sometimes we're overly safe, uh, as a matter of fact. Um, in the Air Force, we have a, a safety officer, and if you cut your finger, they're going to do a 25-page report on it, all right? And they're going to find a way to keep the next guy from cutting his finger in the same way you cut yours. Um, but we like safety. When I was a kid, I remember um, one incident. I, I may have shared this one. Um, it's something that stands out. I, we were living in California. It was fifth fifth, sixth grade for me, and, and um, I was going to the local community school that was right there. It was about five, four or five blocks from the house, Del Rosa Elementary School. And uh, for some reason, I, I, I was completely innocent, but there was a group of boys, four or five, six of them, who decided they were going to beat me up after school. I know, right? Little old me. And I will never forget hitting the door at about 100 miles an hour, running those four or five blocks. I could, I could scamper, okay? Running, looking over my shoulder to see that pack of wolves coming after me. And I'll never forget getting to the front door and beating on it. And for some reason, my dad was home that day and him opening the front door and letting me in. And then I went and peeked out the window from the safety of the house and those boys were out on the street taunting me, okay? Come out here. There were all sorts of hand signals being given. Um, but there I was, 
safe in the house, right? Looking out the window at them, those dogs, those mutilators of young boys. Um, and, and I was safe. I was secure. The reality is, honestly, danger, real no-kidding danger, is lurking everywhere. It's everywhere. Um, from just the, 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 the fact that we, we live in a fallen world to the fact that there are really, no kidding, bad people out in the world who want to do others harm. As we come to 1 Samuel 22, let, let's just look at the story. And I, I hope you kind of got a sense of it, right? Because the story begins, here's Saul. And Saul has heard that David and his men have been discovered. So you can imagine, all right? Um, that, that's a little giddy-up in Saul's step at this point. He, he knows where David is. He kind of knows what's, what's, uh, what's going on. And it tells us that Saul was seated with his spear in his hand at the Tamarisk tree at the hill of Gibeah. And everybody's gathered around. So he's got all of his officials there, um, all of the all of the important people are, are all there. And then he starts in. And, and I hope, as you heard it, Saul is a desperate creature. And he is in a bad way. He, he, his heart has really gotten away from him. Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give you all the fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. Really? You hear the, the scorn. Saul is, he's concerned. He, he feels things slipping away from him, and so he's challenging these guys. What do you, what do you think? You think the son of Jesse's really going to do all that for you? Has, what, has he promised you all of these things? Why, why are you following him and not me? Why, why does it feel like there's a conspiracy against me? See? He's in his head. He's, he's completely losing it. Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant. You see, do you hear the anger in his heart? You don't even tell me when my son cuts a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you are concerned. Poor, poor Saul. Things are really bad. But then verse 9. Verse 9. But Doeg, the Edomite. Do you all know a Doeg? This was the boy in class that ratted on you every time you made a wrong move. Right? Doeg is the brown noser in the story. Okay? Listen, he, he, he hears Saul. Okay? He hears what's going on and, and uh, you know, all this stuff. And so Doeg... Doeg sees an opportunity to rise quickly in the ranks and to, and to catch the attention of Saul. And so Doeg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's official, says, I saw the son of Jesse. He came to Ahimelech, son of Atab, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him and also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. I saw it, Saul. What a pathetic character. So here he is. He was there. He saw the incident. Now he has an opportunity to rat, not David, but Ahimelech the priest. 
And he snitches and rats him out so fast. Ah, now Saul's got something to go on. Doeg, thank you for that little bit of information. You, you can see the scene happening, right? There's Doeg. Now he realizes, oh yeah, Saul's loving this. And so the rest of the story is that, that Saul uh, has them bring <clears throat> Ahimelech down to him. And he challenges him. Why have you conspired against me? Why did you give bread? Why did you give the sword? All of these things. What were you thinking? What were you doing? And, and if you look at the priest's answer, Ahimelech's answer is, is really straightforward. Why Saul? We're talking about David. We're talking about the, uh, who, who could be more loyal than David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, highly respected in your house. Like Ahimelech legitimately is saying, what in the world are you talking about? I took care of David. I helped him along. Why, why wouldn't I have? I've been before the throne praying for him how many times? And Saul's not having any of it. And he says, surely you will die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. And then he orders his guards to kill them. And his guards have too much respect for the priest of Yahweh, and so they don't. But verse 18, Doeg does. Doeg has no affinity for the priest. He ratted him out. And so he carries out the deed. And it's a tragic, terrible deed. Eighty-five men who wore the linen ephod. Eighty-five priests. And then, as if that weren't enough, he went to Nob the hometown of the priests, and he killed their wives and their children and their infants and their animals. But one escaped. He escaped and he made his way to David and he told David all that had happened. And of course, David was, he was downcast. He was sad. He felt responsible. He had been there. He had brought the priest into this whole thing. But he tells him, stay with me and don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. And then those words, you'll be safe with me. What about the story? Here's the first thing I want you to see. First, the story reminds us that evil lurks everywhere. It, 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 it is in Endemic to our situation. From the very beginning, we, there has been a, a battle, a struggle. If you, if you go and you look at Genesis and you, you come right out of the gate after the fall, and there's, there's a, a reminder there in Genesis chapter 3 that the seed of the woman and the seed uh, of the serpent are going to be at odds against each other. And there is, there is going to be a struggle between those who come from the serpent and those who come from the woman. Ultimately, there's a promise there that, that there is going to be one who will come and crush the head of the serpent. But those lines are going to be all the way to the cross at odds with each other. And so part of what you have in Scripture is the story of God's rescue of his people out of the clutches, out of the grasp of 
the seed of the serpent. And so that story begins right out of the gate, Cain and Abel. As, as Abel offers a sacrifice pleasing to the Lord, as one who desires the Lord, Cain comes along and he kills him. Right? Because he's jealous, because he is not a follower of the Lord. He is not giving his best. He was not offering a sacrifice pleasing to the Lord. And then the stories begin, one after another, after another. And you end up at the end of the book of Genesis with the story of Joseph and his brothers. And you see the enmity that is between them. And we see how God rescues Joseph in the midst of all of those circumstances, all the way to the end, and Joseph is uttering the words to his brothers who tried to kill him and then sell him as a slave, and he utters those words. He says, listen, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, so that he may carry out his plan. And then we move some 400 years into the Exodus story, and we have the rise of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is trying to kill the children because the children of of Israel because they're too numerous there's too many of them Uh, they're vastly outnumbering he feels threatened by that and so you recall the the great slaughter that goes on and in the midst of that slaughter is Moses Moses who would be the one who would rescue God's people out of the hand of slavery who would go toe to toe against Pharaoh and then and then the stories keep coming because Because the seed of the serpent is trying, right? He's trying to stop God's plan. And so we get David and Goliath. We get all the way into the New Testament. And what happens? Herod the Great discovers that the king has been born. He immediately goes out and he kills all of the infants under two years of age. Killing boys in order to stop God's plan. And he's an instrument of the seed of the serpent. Saul, before his conversion, another Saul, before his conversion, hunting down Christians, killing them in order to stop the advancement of God's plan. And ultimately, of course, is the cross. And our passage, it's Saul. Saul is unmasked, and now we see him as a tool, if you will, being used by the seed of the serpent in order to stop God's plan, in order to, in order to thwart any advancement of God's plan. Saul shows his true colors. His heart is wicked. He is far from God. God's Spirit has left him. And here he is now chasing down, hunting down anyone who would aid the new king. And he knows it. But he is an enemy of God. In 1 John chapter 2, Verse 18, John tells us, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. 
When John says that, many antichrists have already come and will come, is essentially what he is saying, before the one. Little antichrists, destructive shadows who would thwart God's plan, who would come on the scene and hurt his people and, and, and seek to stop the advancement of what God is doing in the history of his people. In the 20th century, listen, there are numbers of figures in the Bible. There are numbers of figures down through the history of humanity. Just take the 20th century. Just begin to look at the the evil, murderous leaders, Pol Pot, of Cambodia, 2.5 million by genocide. Enver Pasha of Turkey, wiped out by genocide, nearly 3 million Armenians. Khan of Pakistan, 10 million killed in Bangladesh. Lenin, USSR, 5 million. Hitler of Germany, estimated 20 million. Stalin in Russia, 60 million. Mao Zedong in China, 75 million. That's following World War II. Most, not all, But lots of that was intended to stop people from worshiping, to to make sure that they weren't a threat. Because leaders down through history have often seen Christianity as some sort of a threat to their power. And so they operate killing the images of God, not necessarily worshipers, but images of God as a way of stopping the plan. And they operate as little antichrists. Those are, just the, those are just the big ones. Think about all the little ones on the scene hoping to stop the plan of God. Jesus actually talks about it in John 15, beginning in verse 18. Here's how he says it. He says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me first. If you were of the world, it would love you as its own. Instead, the world hates you because you are not in the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. So here's what he's saying. If the world hates you, just remember, it hated me first. Okay? And he's saying, I could have left you in the world. I could have left you in the world, and had I left you in the world, it would have been much easier for you because they would love you. The world would love you. But as it is, they hate you. And the reason that they hate you is because they hated me first. Verse 20, remember the word I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master, right? If Jesus didn't get off the hook, you as his followers aren't going to get off the hook. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. If they kept my word, they will keep yours as well. 
but they will treat you like this on account of my name because they do not know the one who sent me. See, Jesus is saying, look, you know, the story down through the ages of of all of those individuals who tried to stop the plan of my father, they're still there and they're still working to stop the advancement of my plan. And they are against you. They're set against you because they're set against me. Here's the remarkable thing. Christians down through the ages wouldn't have been in that position had he not what? Chosen them out of the world. That's what he says. He says, you're in this predicament because I chose you out of the world. I made you mine. And when I made you mine, I made you an enemy to the world. You're connected to me, to the king. That's the danger that lurks. We don't feel it. We largely do not feel it in the United States. Go to China, especially here in the last couple of years. When Jody and I traveled, and she's been three times, you feel it. You feel some of that pressure. You know you're, you're in a land where 75 million, just in a six-year period, 75 million people lost their lives. Maybe you can feel it in the passage. Maybe as you listen to reports around the world, Voice of the Martyrs, other organizations, maybe you can begin to sense that there is danger. And I'm not a fortune teller, but my guess would be at some point in the, in the future that that sort of danger will be here as well for those in the church. Here's the second thing. The second thing I want you to see is that there is safety with the king. There is safety with the king. David says at the end of the passage to the man who is being hunted, as he makes his way to David, David looks at him and says, look, the same man that's hunting you is hunting me. Come with me. You'll be safe with me. I don't know what that promise looked like. I don't know how he could have been so sure. You know, perhaps what he was saying, look, you know, I got, I got some fighting men. Um, we're, we're on the run. Okay, he hasn't found us yet. Pretty good chance. If you come with me, you'll be safe. I think that's probably what he's saying to him. He's not giving him a blanket promise. He doesn't know if he's going to die of a heart attack the next day. He can't know any of that. But what he's saying to him is, look, I've been pretty successful so far. Why don't you cast your lot, throw it in with us, and perhaps it'll all be good. And oh, by the way, God's hand is resting upon me, and he's told me I'm going to be the next king, so I'm guessing my odds are pretty good at this point. But if you fast forward, Jesus is saying something of the same thing as well. If you're with me, right, if you're you're chosen by me, you'll go through the same things that I go through. So notice, when Jesus gives a promise, when Jesus is promising us safety, he's not promising us safety from something. He's promising safety in him. Does that make sense? So there's no promise For the New Testament believer, there's no promise for you and I 
that we won't encounter harm because of our faith, difficulties because of who we are as Christians. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The exact opposite is promised to us. Did you know that? That's not usually the first line that somebody shares with you when they're telling you about the Lord. Hey, would you like to be a follower of Jesus? And oh, by the way, the world's going to hate you because it hated Jesus. So why don't you come and come to my church where the world hates us, right? We have a great time. It's not exactly a selling point. It's not a touchstone for the church. And yet it's what the church has been promised. Fast forward to the book of Revelation. There's a great deal about the martyrs and the honor that they get through the blood of the Lamb. Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, Marion read it for us. He tells us that God is working everything together for good. Right? For those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose, He's drawing all those lines together for their good. And then He says in verse 31 and 32, right? All of these things are happening around us. There's great difficulties in life. If God is for us, who, who could possibly be against us? Look, he, he didn't spare His Son in order to rescue us, right? Why would He now suddenly let us somehow slip away? He gave Jesus for us. If He gave Jesus for us, He will rescue us. But notice what He doesn't say. What He doesn't say is, oh, and by the way, He gave Jesus for us. You'll never have any trouble. You'll never have any issue. There will never be any hardship. There will never be anything attempting to separate you from the love of God in Christ. That isn't what He says. What he says is, nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then he gives us a pretty pretty troubling list. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or what? Sword? What do you think Paul's thinking? Is he just kind of making these up? No. No. Paul understands who's against the church. He was in prison half of his life as as an apostle. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written in verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor the future nor any power, Seed of the serpent, height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. They're going to try. They will try. The seed of the serpent is trying, will try, will forever be trying until he's crushed once for all. And Paul's saying, listen, to you, the Christian, the, the follower of Christ, nothing not illness, not danger, not, not famine, not the loss of all, all you have. Not even death is going to se- separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let me ask a question. 
Is that how you think about your relationship with the Lord? Look, that he's promised me that his love will rest on me and that's enough for me? Are you longing and hoping to not ever have any real issue? Any real trouble? Any real hardship? Any real actionable problem in your life? Because that's not what he promises. He promises that nothing will separate us from his love. David gave what arguably is a promise. You will be safe with me. And as the king, he was probably issuing that prompt, telling that man that he, he could keep him relatively safe. It pales in comparison to what Jesus tells us. That he will be with us, he will never leave us, he will never forsake us, and he will carry it all the way to the end. Here's the third thing I want you to notice. I want you to notice the sovereignty of God at work. (coughs) The sovereignty of God at work. And this is a really challenging twist. It's really difficult for us to understand. If you look at the passage and you listen to the passage... It's hard, to, it's hard to comprehend, first, the gravity of the evil that the Edomite, Doeg, mets out on the priests. I mean, think about that for a second. These are Israel's pastors. All right? These are the men who are serving in the tabernacle for the rest of Israel. And Doeg the Edomite slaughters them, 85 of them and their families to boot. That's difficult. That is challenging. But here is an amazing thing. The amazing thing is that God had promised that he would deal with the priestly line Back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you have your Bible, turn there. You remember that there were bad things going on with the priests and with the priest's sons, Hopni and Phineas, as you recall. And so the promise. The the judgment promise is given to Eli, beginning in verse 30. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. Verse 31, the time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one will reach old age. And you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done in Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. Here's the challenging part. The challenging part is, okay, in the sovereignty of God, he partially uses Doeg, the Edomite, to carry out 
what was his judgment on the house of Eli. How do you put that together? How do, how do we understand that, right? Because we, we preach, we talk about the sovereignty of God and all things, that nothing happens apart from his plan. This is like 50 years later. So the events of 1 Samuel chapter 2, now we're roughly 40 to 50 years later in 1 Samuel 22. And here is this fulfillment, a partial fulfillment at least, of what was promised to Eli and his sons. It's hard for us to understand. It's never easy to square. God is both not the author of evil, and yet he's in sovereign control of all things, and he pronounced this judgment on the house of Eli. The idea is repeated in Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn there. This is... This is a passage that if you, if you don't have marked or memorized, it would be a good idea. Peter at Pentecost stands up and he gives a sermon. And in his sermon he says this in verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Okay? So here's what he's saying. Look, all you Israelites, Jesus came. He was accredited by God. The the way we know that he was accredited by God was he did what? Miracles, wonders, and signs. And he did them among you through God. And you know about this. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by what? God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Verse 23 is the key. He was handed over to you by what? God's deliberate plan. You see, God had a plan, but he used the evil of men and their hearts, and and again, I don't understand how he does it. He brings those two pieces together. His sovereign plan, and in that plan, he uses the wickedness of men to carry out what? The salvation of his people. Bert Parsons, author, pastor, pastored with R.C. Sproul down at New St. Andrews, says this, We know that God is sovereign over all and that he has ordained the ends, but we too often forget that he has also ordained the means to those ends. And while it is true that God knows the end from the beginning, he is also wisely and providentially orchestrating all things from beginning to end, both in the church and in the world, both in the natural realm and in the supernatural realm. The Holy Spirit empowers, equips, and emboldens those he indwells to pray, preach, evangelize, disciple, and even die. The Bible gives us both. Both God is sovereign over this and Doeg the Edomite, was a rascal, dirty, treasonous murderer. And yet God used him. 
We come to 1 Samuel 22. We read through the story. I leave with, you will be safe with me. I leave with the promise that whatever is going to happen, whatever happens in life, He's sovereign. He is going to work it all together for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. There is one way to know the safety of the King, and that is to belong to the King. Do you belong to the King? It's the only place where real safety is, because it's safety, as Jesus says, safety from the one who can destroy both your soul and your body. Let me pray for us. Father, we pause, we come. This is a difficult passage for us. It lays out uh, some of the most incredible truths in Scripture. And that is your first sovereign over all things. Second, you're caring for your people in ways that we cannot yet fathom nor see. Father, third, there is great danger lurking. But the hope is that there is safety in the King. And so, Father, I pray we will find ourselves there, hidden in the cleft of the rock, knowing the safety and security that comes from the Lord Jesus. We pray it all in His name. Amen.